Okay, I want you to do something. I want you to imagine that uh, your country is at war and uh, one day the air raid sirens go off and you run down to the bomb shelter. But when you get there, you find everyone down there is fighting. Everyone's pushing and shoving and they're throwing punches and they're shouting at each other. So you go and find a quiet corner somewhere and you get out your phone and you go online to find out how the war is going. But what you read is that your country's army is beginning to turn on itself and your own side is fighting itself. What would you say to that? I mean, how would you respond to that? Probably something like, guys, I think we have forgotten who the enemy is. And if we carry on like this, defeat is certain. Well, Peter is writing to Christians who are coming under attack from a society that is increasingly hostile to them. And they're hostile to them because they are Christians. And verse 9 gives us just a hint of what they were facing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Okay, what's the implication of that? The implication of, of that is that they are on the receiving end of evil, that they are, they are facing reviling coming towards them, which means that in an honor-shame culture like theirs, they're probably being insulted. They're being shamed. Their reputations are being trashed. And that's not just going to have an adverse impact on their reputations, but on their livelihoods, on who's willing to work with them or associate with them. And the danger of living under that kind of pressure, the danger of living under incoming missiles, is that you begin to lash out. And not just on those who are attacking you, but on your own side. You begin to mistake friends for enemies, okay, which obviously isn't a great idea. Okay, but if that's not a great idea, then what is? What are, how are you supposed to respond? Well, in today's passage, Peter tells us in two ways. We're to respond by building and being part of an alternative community, a community that is strong and kind and that it can equip you for the battle out there. But secondly, and amazingly, that in that battle out there, you do not return fire on those who are firing on you. First point then, a different community. Now, I mean, Despite knowing the kind of hostility that his friends are facing, Peter never suggests that they retreat to a bomb shelter of a ghetto. In fact, as we've been seeing, rather than withdraw, he has been encouraging them to live lives of such beauty out there among the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 12, that it attracts people, at least some people, to the gospel which means that saying no to an attitude of withdrawal, saying no to the idea of being a ghetto, is not the same as being indistinguishable from the rest of society and just blending in, adopting their worldview and their practices. Instead, Peter says, these guys, you and me, are to commit themselves to one another as a counterculture. 
as a culture within a culture, as a society within a society, not as a ghetto, but as a haven, not as a silo where, every, where you know, we're living in a parallel universe to everybody else, but as an oasis in the desert of opposition they're going to face. Verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, firstly, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Because up, up, up until now, you know, in the section we've uh, been uh, looking at uh, recently, he's spoken how, of how every one of us should be subject to the governing authorities. Then he's addressed servants, then wives, and then husbands. But now, it is all of you. Who does that include? Okay, who, who does it leave out? Because suddenly, we all have to sit up and listen, don't we? Okay, none of us can sort of doze off and go, oh, this is for the husbands, this is for the wives, this is for the married people, and I'm single, so wake me up when he's done. Nor can you go, oh, I know who needs to hear this. Okay, he needs to hear this. Now, Peter says, hey, this is for all of you, for all of us. And Peter gives five virtues, five attitudes of head and heart that will build the kind of community that can equip and support one another when life is growing hard as a Christian. Okay, but before we look at those five attitudes, how does the world say you should do it? How does the world say that we should, anyone should build a community? Well, if you think about back then when Peter was writing, there was a consensus that if you wanted society to survive, there had to be a uniformity of thinking, a like-mindedness. Everyone had to agree. This is how society functions. This is uh, who goes where in the pecking order. This is how the gods should be worshipped. And if anyone rocked the boat, okay, if anyone was seen as undermining that, if anyone thought they wanted to change their sort of social position, if, if anyone threatened that order like these Christians did, because they started saying, hey, women and slaves are of equal dignity with everybody else, then they were seen as a threat. Fast forward to today. And that kind of uniformity of thinking has given way to a tribalism and an individualism that is having a hard time of maintaining any sense of wider community, at least here in the West. Okay, so whether it is in the first century or 21st century world, the attitudes that Peter says that Christians should cultivate have the power to create a very different kind of society. Verse 8 again. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Now, does that mean that the church is going to be a place where everyone is thinking the same way? Absolutely. Okay, when it comes to what we believe about God, when it comes to what we believe about Christ and about the gospel, when it, when it comes to sharing and contending for the gospel and letting the gospel shape every area of our lives, Peter is saying, guys, be united. Hey, agree on this. But unity is not the same as uniformity. 
You see, in Greco-Roman culture, your identity was rooted in that society and in your place in society, whereas today, it is increasingly rooted in your tribe. Either way, people have a hard time dealing with differences of opinion because those differences threaten society back then or your tribe now and with it your identity. So back then, that led to these Christians being reviled, as Peter says, and today it leads to cancel culture, to silence that voice that threatens your identity. But the unity that Peter is talking about is different because while the church is to contend for the truth about Christ and about primary right-hand issues, we can love our neighbors even when we profoundly disagree with them on secondary or tertiary or quaternary left-hand issues. Why? Because our identity isn't rooted in a tribe. It's rooted in Christ. So we don't need to feel threatened by those who differ from us. Secondly, verse 8. All of you have sympathy. Now, what does it mean to be sympathetic? I mean, I feel challenged by this because we were having a discussion over lunch uh, the other day and one of my daughters said to me, Dad, just try and be sympathetic. Okay, what, what does it mean to be sympathetic? It means to feel with someone, doesn't it? It means to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. The problem comes when we get those round the wrong way. Okay, and we want the person who's weeping to rejoice or we want the person who's rejoicing to weep. Okay, imagine someone who is experiencing conflict with their friends or their spouse or their co-workers because of the Christian faith. And they're feeling the heat of that. And it's beginning to get to them. Or imagine somebody, a friend of yours, who is struggling with some sin. Or somebody where life is just hard and it is beginning to hurt. And they're struggling and someone says, oh, come on, buck up. Come on, pull yourself together. Life's not so bad. Look on the bright side of life. And they're weeping. And the danger is we're telling them, hey, rejoice. And Peter is saying, look, if you're going to live faithfully as a Christian out there in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile, a world that is you know, showing increasing antipathy to Christians, be part of creating a community of sympathy that feels with each other, that bears one another's burdens, that gently helps one another back up and back into the fight. So be sympathetic. Thirdly, verse 8, he says, All of you have brotherly love. Take our four girls, not literally, metaphorically, okay? Take our, take our four girls. If they weren't sisters, okay, if you don't know, they've got four daughters. Uh, if they weren't sisters, would they be friends? Because if you don't know them, they're very different from each other. Okay, if they weren't sisters, would they be friends? And the answer is, who knows? But they're family, so they love one another. And when one of them is struggling or feels down, the others all pile in with encouragement. And Peter is saying, 
Guys, God is our father and Christ is our brother. And that means we are family and we may not have chosen one another. I mean, you might not have chosen me. Okay, but God has chosen us and we are loved by him. So we're going to love one another, even especially if the world doesn't. Fourthly, verse 8, all of you have a tender heart. Interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the dangers of life being hard is that we can become a bit hard-hearted. And you're facing criticism, you're facing hostility, and you can begin to get a bit critical and hostile in response. And a sort of a general feeling of cynicism can creep into all of your relationships when you see the way society is going. And Peter says, hey, instead of that, be soft-hearted. In fact, the word he uses for being tender-hearted is not about your heart at all. It's about your intestines. Because that's where the ancient world thought your emotions lay, in your gut. And if you think about it, we still speak like that and talk like that, don't we? Yeah, I just have this gut feeling. Or you go, oh, I felt it there. It's a, um, it's a word we could translate elsewhere in the Bible. It is translated as compassion. It's what Jesus said the good Samaritan had for the Jewish man lying broken in the road. And it's what the religious people didn't have as they walked on by on the other side. Compassion. And Peter is saying, treat one another in the church like that. With compassion. You may be very different from one, other, one another, like the Samaritan was different from the Jewish man. But be tender-hearted with each other. The world out there might increasingly struggle to care for those from a different tribe or across racial or social or political lines. And Peter is saying, guys, be different. Be willing to stop. Be willing to bend down. Be willing to expend yourself in care for one another. Finally, verse 8. All of you have a humble mind. Now, in Peter's day, humility was considered a vice, not a virtue. Humility was considered a sign of weakness. Because in an honor-shame culture, what matters is honor and defending your honor. If your honor is being attacked, you defend it. But humility is too weak to do that. But if humility was having a hard time in the first century, what about the 21st century? I mean, social media, with its push to get yourself out there, hardly encourages humility, does it? Or like in ancient Rome, Nietzsche viewed humility as a sign of passive people who are too weak to assert their own will to power. And tribalism depends on trying to prove that you and your group are better than those over there. And Peter is saying what other people either consider or just the way they live show that they think is a vice, adopt as one of your defining virtues. Now, Peter's a guy who knows about humility, isn't, it? isn't he? Because he had to learn it the hard way. 
Okay, he had promised that regardless of how everyone else behaved, he was going to stick by Jesus come what be. Everyone else might deny him, but Jesus, I won't. I'm going to be different because I'm better than the others. What was Peter's problem? He didn't know himself, did he? He didn't know how much his own safety or the good opinion of other people mattered to him. But now he's got a much better self-knowledge, particularly about his weakness. And he's saying, guys, be humble. Don't think that you're better than others or you will begin to turn on each other. Instead, create a culture of humility where you think of and count each other more important than yourself. So, if you're going to live in a pagan world, and you've got no choice about that now, you're going to experience hostility, but not inside the church, Peter says. Instead, Create a culture within a culture, a society within a society, a place where unity and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility shape the way that we treat one another. Okay, but it's not just relationships inside that are going to be different. Second point then, a different response. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, if you, like them, if you are living in an honor-shame culture and your honor is at stake because you're being shamed, everything inside you is going to be telling you, fight back, strike back, treat them the way that they have treated you. Why are you going to respond like that? Because that's the way your culture has shaped you. But if you think about it, it wasn't just a problem for them. You only have to see how arguments suddenly brew up on the internet or see how our public figures attack one another to know that that desire to defend yourself and your name or your position and to get even is alive and well today. But the hard truth is you don't have to look out there, do you? Just have to look in here. Just have to look at our own hearts. I mean, think of how you react. Think of that urge you feel inside yourself when you're insulted, or when you're put upon, or when you're attacked, or when you or your views are belittled. That urge not just to defend yourself, but to give as good as you get. Or maybe not. Maybe you're better than that. Maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's just that little upswing of joy that you feel when karma strikes and that person who is unkind to you or that person who is critical to, to you or that person who is critical of the Christian faith has something bad happen to them. And Peter is saying, yes, but karma is not the gospel and neither is repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Ben Ferencz, who died this week, was the last uh, surviving prosecutor at the Nuremberg war trials. And he had seen firsthand the horror of the concentration camps. Despite being Jewish himself, he wrote, I learned that vengeance is not a way to settle any of our disputes. Because if you turn loose the vengeance, everybody is going to kill everybody. 
He's right, isn't he? But Peter goes even further because he doesn't just say, don't get your own back, don't do that. He says, but do, do this. And the thing that they and you and I are to do in the face of hostility, amazingly, is to bless. To bless. You've got missiles coming in, and your response, Peter says, is going to be to bless. Listen to what Jesus says. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, in Greco-Roman culture, to bless someone, literally to eulogize them, was to speak well of them. Okay, so one level, Peter is saying, someone speaks ill of you. Well, in response, don't gossip about them. Don't backbite about them. Speak well of them. You can imagine a situation with your work colleagues. You, you've, somebody said something unkind or critical about you or your, your beliefs, and instead of trying to undermine them, you say good things about them to other people. Okay, but that's true and good, and we absolutely should do that. But Peter and Jesus are saying more than that, because that's what the Greco-Roman culture understood by eulogize, to bless. But in Jewish biblical culture, to bless someone went further, didn't it? Because to bless someone is to actively pray for them and to pray for God's blessing, to pray for God's grace and favor to be poured into their lives. So Peter is saying, when you are facing hostility for your faith, bless that person. They're speaking badly of you. Well, you speak well of them. More than that, speak to God on their behalf and ask God to show them favor and grace and pour his goodness into their lives. And just think what that would do for the cycle of vengeance and name-calling out there. See, Peter says that to live like that is a part of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 9, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, when you're uh, young, maybe even when you're old, you can spend time worrying about what the Lord's calling on your life is, can't you? you know, what, what's he calling me to do? Well, here we've got one of the things he's calling you to do. In the face of hostility, bless. Now, does Peter mean that we have been called by God in Christ to be blessed by him so that we can bless others? We've been blessed to be a blessing, definitely. And yet most commentators agree that here Peter is meaning something slightly different from that. That as Christians, we have been called to bless others and that there is a blessing to be had in blessing others. That one of the markers of what it means to be a genuine Christian is that we will pray for blessing on those who curse us. And as we do that, we will experience blessing. Okay, I don't know what you think about that. But to be sympathetic and to love and to show compassion to those who you are united with in faith, in the church, is one thing. But to want the best for those who insult us, who demean us, 
who ridicule us? What could make you even want to do that, let alone actually begin to do it? Last point, a different motive. Now, do you ever find yourself having a song of the moment? You know, you just find yourself, this song gets into your, into your brain and you find yourself singing it and humming it all the time. When Peter wrote this letter, I think his song of the moment was Psalm 34. Okay, we read it at the beginning in our responsive reading. We sang it in one of our songs. And I say that because he has quoted it numerous times already throughout the letter, like in chapter 2, verse 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And here in verses 10 and 11, he does it again, as he quotes from Psalm 34, verse 12 onwards. For whoever desires to live, to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When did David write that? David wrote that when he was on the run from King Saul, when he was hiding for his life, when he was living among the Philistines who were beginning to get suspicious of him and turn on him. So this is not a psalm written in some kind of academic ivory tower. This was written when David was himself facing dangerous hostility and when his own integrity was being questioned. And Peter's saying, so listen to David, if you want to enjoy life, if you don't want to be dragged down by everyone else's negativity and constantly descend the spiral of speaking badly about everyone else, then speak and do what is good and seek peace and pursue it. And if you do, you will rise above the noise, and even bad days, even hostile days, can become good days. Again, all of which is true, but it's more than that. Because throughout this letter, what is the, uh, what's the horizon that Peter is wanting you to look towards? Is it just tomorrow? It's the end of time, isn't it? It's the time when Jesus returns and everything is put right. He's wanting all of us to live with an eternal perspective. As Hilary of Arles, a fifth century bishop who knew what it was to deal with hostility, gave, he faced the active hostility of a pope. And he wrote in his commentary on 1 Peter, on these verses, the present is evil, but the future is bright. We should always remember that. In other words, when Peter talks of us choosing to bless others, even when they curse us, he's not preaching some kind of prosperity gospel. Live like this and you're going to be blessed. You're going to experience bright days and you're going to live a great life in this life. Okay, that may or may not happen. But what will happen is that by living like that, you will give proof that you really are a Christian, that you have been called by Christ, and that your ultimate hope is not in this life, but in the bright days and the glory of Christ that are to come. But the truth is, you can live like that and it all be a bit self-righteous, can't you? Because actually the, the reason you're doing it is that 
you know, we think, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to lower myself to their behavior. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to speak like they do, because I'm better than that. That to behave or speak like that, that's a bit beneath me, frankly. I'm, I'm above that. But if you think about that, and if you think like that, isn't that just a bit like looking down on them, the way they look down on us? And you can think that, you know, we can think that we are better than them the way they think they are better than us. Is that seeking their blessing? No, that's pride. So if we are genuinely to bless others when they curse us, we need something that doesn't just encourage us. We need something that doesn't just remind us that we are loved and chosen regardless of what everyone else is saying. We need something that also humbles us and tells us we are no better in our own skin than those who mistreat us. So verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. What a great promise. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And we can bless those who curse us because we can know that ultimately vengeance is in God's hands, not ours. It lies in his hands in the bright days to come, not in our hands now. As Paul writes, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But again, yet again, it's more than just that. You see, when it comes to true righteousness and not self-righteousness, no one is more righteous than Christ. Because if here Peter quotes Psalm 34 and says that God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, no wonder the writer to the Hebrews could say of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, and he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus is the ultimate one, isn't he? He's the ultimate righteous one, the one who God's eyes are upon, the one whose God's ears are attentive to, and who listen to his prayers with pleasure, of whom God said, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. God heard his prayers. God looked upon him with pleasure. And then look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayer that the cup of suffering would be taken away. Was that prayer heard? At least it wasn't answered in the affirmative, was it? And rather than enjoying life there in the garden, as the burden of our sin began to weigh down upon him, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And at his trial, he endured the scoffing and the insults of his enemies. And at the cross, as God's wrath for our sin, for all the times we've not even managed to love our friends, let alone our enemies, as God's wrath for that was poured out upon him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as God the Father turned his face away from him. As Peter's words from Psalm 34 came true for Christ, that the face of the Lord 
is against those who do evil. Not because Jesus did evil, but because in that moment he was bearing our evil. And he became a curse. Why? So that we might be blessed. And when you see the Son of God humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, even the most shameful of all deaths, and he's doing it for you, it has the power to profoundly humble you. And look at him sympathizing with you in your weakness. And you're sympathized with others. When you see how he has had compassion on you and come to you in your brokenness, like the Samaritan came to the Jewish man, you'll feel compassion for others. And we'll begin to show the same kind of sacrificial, putting the other first brotherly love that Christ our brother showed us. But ask yourself, that's great for inside, what about outside? Ask yourself, did Christ show us that kind of grace and mercy when we were his friends? Did he show us that kind of grace and mercy? Did he he wait for us before he did that to clean up our act? Or to get our politics right? Or to stop attacking other people? Or to get our views on human sexuality all in order? As Peter writes, so as Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when that sinks in, instead of returning reviling for reviling, we will bless. So this week, when someone cuts you up on the road, or you become aware of that urge to get your own back, or you find yourself harboring unkind thoughts against someone like that politician you despise, or that person who criticizes the Christian faith, don't. Don't despise, don't cuss them out. Instead, pray that God would bless them, that he'd draw them to himself by his spirit, that they'd be converted. And maybe if you find yourself with this disposition to keep on attacking, maybe stop watching those attack videos. You know, those those videos that encourage you to think that the greatest thing in the world is watching someone shout down or burn someone else. Maybe cut that out of your life. And to maintain that attitude of blessing in a divided world, we're all going to need to be part of a different type of community. A community that shapes you and changes you. A community that is marked by unity and sympathy, by love and tender-hearted humility. But for such a community to exist, we all need to be a part of building it by making these virtues our virtues and by committing to that community. So if you are not yet in a home group, Think about joining one. And if you are already in a home group, spend some time this week praying for every member of your group and asking God to show you how you can love and care and show compassion and sympathy for them. How we can grow in unity and humility toward each other. And let us, let the love that Christ has shown us flow out 
to those inside and outside the church. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love of the Lord Jesus. Lord, deep, (coughs) measureless, boundless love. Father, for us. Lord, and you know better than we do, Lord, that we do not have all our ducks in order. Lord, you know the sin in our lives. You know the pride. You know the arrogance. You know the criticism of others. You know our guilt and our shame. And yet you have loved us in Christ. Lord, help us to be both humbled by the gospel and to be lifted and built up by it. And help us, Lord, to increasingly love one another as you have loved us and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And instead of returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, Father, may we be a community that blesses as you have blessed us in the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.